Hello and welcome to this download from Faber. My name is George Miller and my guest today is Oliver Balch. Oliver is an independent journalist based in Buenos Aires who writes regularly on South American affairs for The Guardian. In order to write his first book, Viva South America, Oliver undertook a mammoth journey the length and breadth of the continent. Towards the end of the book, he itemises that journey. 67 long-distance buses, 18 flights, 9,578 photos, 105 hotel beds, 29 notebooks, hundreds of local buses, scores of metro stops, 16 tram journeys, dozens of taxi rides, 11 trips by rickshaw, innumerable interviews, 8 nights in a tent, 5 days in a canoe, 4 boat rides, 3 trips by cable car, 2 lost memory sticks, and 1 dinner of boiled Bolivian sheep's head. The result of all those miles and the encounters he had along the way is a wonderfully detailed portrait of a continent, of its grim realities and also its signs of hope. I asked Oliver how his fascination with South America began. I spent a year when I graduated from university learning Spanish in Bolivia and working for a charity. I think Spanish actually was one of the first things that drew me to the to the continent. I spent almost a decade learning Latin and Greek at school and I was determined to find a language that was alive rather than dead and I'd been to the Dominican Republic for two months during my undergraduate course doing a, a social project there and had, had fallen in love with the language about the colours and the and the romanticism as well. I love the literature of South America and Marquez probably more than anyone drew me to, to the continent. So I spent this year in Bolivia and at the back of my mind was always thinking of ways I might be able to go back for a longer term, make a career of it. At the same time, I was working in, in business ethics for large companies in London on issues regarding environment or workers' rights or this sort of thing, human rights issues, none of which um, were taking place in, in London, but all in, in in Southeast Asia or China or in Latin America in many cases. And I thought for my incredibility, I ought to actually go and, and see some of these things um, firsthand. I chose Argentina for a number of reasons. One, I got married in the process of being in Bolivia and deciding to move back, and I had to persuade my wife. And Argentina is one of those uh, bridge points between Europe and, and South America. It's uh, Especially Buenos Aires is a very livable city and culturally more European, perhaps, than uh, the high Andes, for example. So that was one reason. I was, also, I was very attracted to the post-crisis story there in Argentina. For the 1990s, it had been the poster child of the Washington consensus, uh, the notion of, of privatising everything and, and, and the private sector bringing ruthless efficiency to everything. And that imploded in 2001 from a business perspective and an economic model that interested me. But also, and more importantly, the cultural response from Argentines. I thought it, it was an experience like the Blitz in London, that it touched everyone's lives, rich or poor. And some people came out, you know, the rich who had their money stored off, off seas, came back actually in, in better shape once the peso had devalued. But it still was a universal experience. And, and the example of Argentines in responding to that I thought was fascinating. So I went, I went primarily to Argentina to work as a, a correspondent, to have a go at that, and to find out more about this fascinating culture. Is my impression correct that it seems to me that we in Europe know more and more about India and Pakistan and China and so on, but South America really remains surprisingly blank in most people's perceptions. No, I think that's very true and quite frustrating as a journalist because there's some great stories there. 
But once you filled the paper with your Iraq story and your US story and your, your Paris or your Madrid story and whichever African country is going down the pan, uh, there's not much space left. And so I think there's a space issue as well. People are fascinated by it, but not sure really where to, where, how to get in there, how to enter it. And so it, it does tend to be a continent of stereotypes, I find. And, and living and working in Argentina, uh, you can write countless articles on Maradona or the Falklands or steak, but try pitching something on work a revolution or something like that. It doesn't have a cowboy in it. You're not going to get very far. In fact, Bolivar, 200 years ago, said it was a continent shrouded in darkness. And that's still the case today. And the, and the hope with the book was to try and lift up that blanket and see what was underneath it. You pursue lots of questions in the book about economics and race and politics and a lot of women. But I wondered if there was one kind of impetus that drove you to undertake these travels and if there was one sort of overarching question that you wanted to to satisfy your, yourself mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. The question that I, I pose myself at the beginning of the journey and that structures the book is 200 years after independence, to what extent have the goals of the liberators, people like Simon Bolivar particularly, but um, San Martin in Argentina, to what extent have the goals of, 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 of liberation been realized? And the reason I, I asked that question was to try and understand why Latin America was voting in these left-wing populist presidents, in particular Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela. But uh, I was I was pitching the book in 2006, where there were 13 elections across Latin America, almost all of which seemed to be going left in one shade or another. And uh, it struck me that, that they were obviously tapping into some sort of frustration, some sort of tr struggle, that when, they, when their leaders came out and talked about the Imperial North and uh, grabbing multinationals and this sort of thing, that, that was resonating with, with these voters. And I wondered where that was coming from. And this character Bolivar and all that he stood for helped me, I think, uh, to ask that question. Um, and Chavez as well is, is, is a key player as far as understanding the region, uh, the, the climate at the moment, the political and social climate. I went to a, a speech that he gave in 2005 in a football stadium in a place called Mar del Plata and he, he quoted a poet, a Cuban poet who's the inspiration for Fidel Castro in many senses called Jose Marti and the phrase was the hour has come for the second independence of the peoples of the Americas and uh, I thought second independence, hang on but you know they got independence 200 years ago, what's this second independence? So it's the broader fight for freedom and liberty and fairness those enlightenment goals that the liberators like Bolivar stood for. And, and so that idea of a second fight for independence was, was, was what led me to all these different places and what brings those disparate themes, as you mentioned before, of race and women and indigenous and economics or whatever, brings them together. And Bolivar seems to be very much a presence, a, a living presence almost in South America today in the shape of monuments and quotations and mm -hmm. invocations of his name. And so it's possible to kind of trace his career onto the, the, the top of, of modern day South America in a way in the book? Certainly as, a, as, a, as a, a way of structuring the book he's very useful. He's the classic revolutionary so if you're looking for, for South America to understand the South American revolutionary spirit then here's a man that has not only written about it, has not only fought it but has travelled around the region as well. So in some, in some very practical ways I could, I could go to places that Bolivar had been to but in a much broader sense he set the agenda of what revolution's about, what struggle's about, and which I could apply to places where Bolivar had never been. And he had never been to Brazil, for example, or Argentina or Chile. But it's not the Bolivar 
of history that you see in today's uh, in today's contemporary South America. Like any historical figure, he stands for a lot. And he can stand for whatever want, people want him to stand for, basically. He's been used for the right just as much as he's been used for the left. Uh, he's, he's one of those useful figures. He's, a, he's an icon of history that can be used as, as a myth-making machine to build up new contemporary Bolivars like, uh, like Chavez. See, you had this very big question, and then you had a whole set of other questions which are also substantial, and you had a vast continent. So how on earth did you begin to plan what you were going to do and who you were going to see? How did you mm. sort of bring some coherence to this big question? I started with this theme of independence, and I thought, well, what themes to tap into that, that, that struggle for independence, and whether it's be, be race relations, whether it be the uh, uh, in, indigenous issues, whether it be women, whether it be human rights abuses, whether it be violence, whatever it might be. And then I thought, uh, which countries those themes resonate with most strongly. And coming back to that point before, that it's a continent of stereotypes, I like the idea of, of picking countries that were particularly known for one thing and then turning it around and this, this idea, this struggle thing helped. Chile was a good example of, of that in that uh, it's known as a very conservative country, a very Catholic country, and this is model of what women are about set largely by the religious right. A, a woman's role is to be subservient and uh, look after her husband, basically. And overlapping that as well is the whole thing about uh, Latin American machismo and the, and the strong man. So I approached it asking what's the model that Chileans have in their heads of what, of what women, the women's role is, is and gender, and, and then looking at what the reality is. I, I'd heard that HIV cases amongst women were, were increasingly were going up for a number of reasons. One, because their husbands sleep around and don't tell them and therefore kind of bring it back into the marital bedroom, so to speak. And the other is that many, being, being openly gay in Chile is very difficult and many gay men marry because that's the social pressure to do so and have extramarital affairs and get infected and then the women get infected. But not only that, but this, the, the fact that there are no women, almost no women publicly who, who say they're HIV positive is a hidden story, partly because there's a shame uh, related to it, but partly because it's a, it's, a, it's a gay men's issue, but it's a men's issue. And the idea that women might have HIV as well, again, is, is one of those, those things that, that Chileans don't want to, to talk about, really. Approaching it with that, with, that, um, with that mindset of saying, here's a stereotype, here's a country resonant with this particular theme, and then, and then actually digging a bit deeper was interesting. I mean, in the case of Chile, I should say that they have a female president who's doing a lot on women's rights. So that's not a stereotype. I mean, that that you know, there's something substantial there as well happening. It, and in Chile, you go to a, a a lesbian wedding ceremony, and that seemed to me kind of emblematic of what you found in many countries that there were there were green shoots of change or the prospect of things changing, and yet um, you write about how the the very language that people use in Chile is imbued with, with sexist mm. terminologies, the, the, the structure of how people mm. think and speak. Mm. And that seemed to me quite emblematic of what you found often, that there was an impetus for change, but there was a very heavy weight of vested interest to fight against. I, I guess, I mean, the remarkable thing about that is that people do, still do struggle. I was in India last year visiting a friend of mine who had been working in, uh, in Argentina with grassroots political groups in, in the shanty towns around Buenos Aires, and his wife got posted to India, so he went with her. Uh, and he was hoping to get involved in similar sort of projects in, in the um, low-income communities there. And he was pulling his hair out after a year because 
Indians, he said, were in many cases are much more resigned to their fate. In Latin America, regardless of the obstacles, people are still still get up and they and they fight and they struggle. And I think that's what that spirit of 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 revolution of, of of changing your circumstances despite the odds is a remarkable thing about about the region. One of the things I took away: they, the the revolutionaries aren't Chavez and Morales. They are, but the real revolutionaries are the people that wake up in the morning and go out looking for job, or set up their own business, or leave that husband that beats them, or leave that brothel where they're where they're stuck, or you know, in radical cases, or, or just carry on going from day to day against the bureaucracy and against the corruption and against the violence around them, against the lack of education, the lack of health care, and still fight. You talked about wanting to get away from the stereotypes, and I, I really appreciated in the book the quality of the human encounters you had. I think that's the thing which will stay in my, my memory, really, is the people you met. And you met an extraordinary mm-hmm. gallery of, of people from all walks of life, from all races, all conditions. Presumably, some of that was serendipity, and you could you couldn't really plan it, and you couldn't you couldn't sort of force them to be representative of anything. You were just you know letting their their own humanity come across. Yeah, and it was the most exciting thing. I mean, in terms of writing the book, the most exciting aspect of it, and the most revealing aspect of it. I work as a journalist. But the way that news journalism works is that you more or less know the story you've got to write about, and you know the two or three commentators you've got to phone up and get your quote from, and you structure it like that, and. In, inevitably that's how news journalism works you don't have long to do it but there are set spokespeople you go to the NGO leader or the politician or what have you and the joy of this book it gave me space to get off that track and go and talk to people and when you start talking to people you find they have fascinating stories and if you come as a foreign journalist to someone that's never spoken to a foreigner let alone a foreign journalist and you show and you express an interest in their lives they'll, and in Latin American they'll sit down for two three hours with you they'll invite you back to their homes and it's very network-based society as well. So one person will tell you he's got a cousin who's got a friend who you can put you in touch with, and you just have to turn up and knock on the door and say, you know, Jose sent me, and they might sometimes not even know who Jose is, but they, they, as long as you have an introduction like that. It was a, it was a revelation for me, not just as a, as a, as a journalist, but as a person, the, the stories that, that people have there. The, the book gave me an excuse to be nosy and to go into people's homes and put myself in places where, I, where I've never been. I went to a swingers bar, for example. It doesn't appear in the book for reasons of matrimonial edits. But um, I met with uh, victims of HIV, as I was mentioned. I went to a, le- a lesbian wedding. Those are things that I, I haven't done in England. I'm sure I could, actually. I'm sure I could. It, it, it's opened my eyes to, I think, the stories that there are out there. So it's a very enriching experience for me as well. And I was also impassioned by by the idea of giving, it sounds moralistic, and I, I don't mean it to be that way, but by, by giving people that don't have a voice a voice. Obviously there are millions of people that aren't mentioned in the book, but the people here, no one's ever heard of outside their village quite often, or their family, or they're never gonna appear in a newspaper. And giving them a voice and having them speak about their realities, I think will even teach Latin Americans something about, about kind of their own continent sometimes. Um, in, in much ways, if, if someone had done that in the UK and told me what it was like to live on a council estate in Bristol, I've never been to a council estate in Bristol. Yeah. It would be it would be revealing. So, yeah, I, I, the human interest was was the thing that I I thought would convey the message most. And and it's the story. It's the story of Latin America. It's the story of the people of Latin America. Well, one of the stories which really particularly sticks in my mind was one where you had to actually coax it out a bit of your the person you were speaking to is Alvaro, who was mm. in, in Colombia, and it's in the chapter on violence. Maybe you can say a little bit about his experience, because that really brought home to me mm. the reality of living with far- the FARC um, mm. in a way that nothing mm. else I'd read mm. before had. 
I met Alvaro on my th- my third day in Bogota. He knew as many people as I did, which was um, zero. I met him on the steps of a church where he'd gone for help. On the same day that I flew into Bogota, he was standing on his in his farm in uh, Meta province in the in the south of the country, in fart controlled area. He, apparently, it's 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 a beautiful valley. He works as a he grew tomatoes. He had cows. He just paid off his his the mortgage on his uh, little farmstead. His wife had left him, but he lived with his nephew, who was about 25. Alvaro was about 35. And about three months ago, the army turned up. And in the way that they do, they said, um, Alvaro, we're using your your farmstead to um, to encamp. And for the ne- for the following week, they they attacked the FARC who were who were based in the jungle just on the edge of his land. Then they left after a week. Several months later, they came back, and the, and the same process happened again. After they'd left the second time, the FARC come out, a 20-year-old boy, essentially, with, with three others, all with uh, machine guns, and they interrogated him, and they said, uh, you know, what are you collaborating with the army for? Obviously, Alvador had no choice. The army just turn up, but he was seen as a conspirator, so he was told to leave his land. And um, here's a subsistence farmer, in essence. He doesn't use cash very much. He'd sell his milk or his cows in town probably in exchange for other things he hasn't he hasn't got any money so he says well give me six hours to get some money together to sell some of my cattle or to sell my house and, and and right i'll go and he was expecting the fart to come out he knew he, everyone knows the game and the word in spanish is ya for now so the, the the general said you know leave now and uh, when alvaro made this request he just turned to him and said you don't understand ya reached down into his pocket pulled out a pistol and shot his nephew in the head and Alvaro just turns and runs. He doesn't know what they've done with the body. He just heard it fall on the ground. He ran down the hill. He jumped on the first bus that came past. He was told not to go to the village. He was dropped in hysterics, in shock, obviously, in a, in a town nearby. And some woman, a truck driver, took, took pity on him and gave him a lift to Bogota. And there he was, standing on the street in the same jeans and, and shoes and, and T-shirt that he was wearing on that Thursday morning when, when this incident happened. His whole life just turned upside down. He'd never been to Bogota. He knew no one there. Uh, and those stories are happening all the time. The official line is that you know there's peace in Colombia, or, or at least the paramilitaries have demobilized and the FARC are becoming less and less powerful. But their presence in the in the uh, countryside areas is, is still very present. And people not, might not be be being expelled in in the in the hundreds or the thousands, but certainly in in the ones and twos and dozens. And actually, Colombia has the biggest internal refugee problem after Sudan in the world. And over the Three decades of conflict. Three million people are, are, are reckoned to have lost their homes, and Alvaro is just one of, you know, one of those millions. Well, the, yeah, the word displacement is one which kind of runs through the book mm. like a leitmotif because you talked about Alvaro being displaced by the FARC, but there are indigenous people displaced because of oil exploration, or there are farmers turfed off their land mm. because of soya from one of the big international uh, grain companies, and it, it seems to me that human life. Is, is treated as, as very cheap. Well, life is cheap, yeah. But land is very important to still largely agricultural society, despite the mega cities that they have, many people live off the land. And so displacement is the, bre- the total breakdown of your identity and your, and your mode of living. A, f- a farmer that's lost his land has lost everything. And you see that in the, in the shanty towns around the big cities, uh, people dislocated that, and with their land go, goes everything else. And that's why there's such resistance from groups in Brazil. You see, you hear a lot, and the indigenous groups as well. And in the case of the indigenous, it's not just their their mode of sustenance; it's their entire belief system is linked in with 
with the land and what it means and, and the way they, they see belongings and land and success and it's all about that maintenance of relationships, that's where they see wealth and, and land is very much part of that. And so the environmental issues of contamination, it's just not the fact that people get sick but it's the fact that you are um, insulting Pachamama. The book, as we've been saying, is full of, of stories which are grim and about the abuse, mm. the abuses that people visit on each other, but also of stories of, of great resilience and, and struggling on and fighting on, mm. as you've said. And I wondered, at the end of the book, whether you felt more or less optimistic about the future for South America than you did at the start. I try, I'm, 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 again, I'm glad you, you picked that up, because there are poorer places in the world. And, and life is grim in lots of places. I think what stands out about Latin America, South America, is that people will keep on getting up and fighting. What will happen in South America in the coming years is very difficult to tell. I think the economic crisis is going to hit them quite hard. Uh, countries like Venezuela. Venezuela has had this, this oil boom over the last 10 years. Well, it's enabled Chavez to do a lot of the things he's done. And maybe, maybe looking at, at, uh, at the Venezuelan experience will be interesting to work out just how ingrained these these new political experiments in, in, in South America are. For example, he runs something called the, the Missions, which are like social projects essentially, which have which have garnered a lot of attention at some criticism. But basically they're 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 common sense school policies if you've got suddenly a, a cash a, a, a cash haul from your oil to give it away to, to people that are going to support you. And, and when he doesn't have that that money from the oil, those are going to slow down. What's more interesting, I think, in Venezuela is this notion of participative democracy, that he's got small communal groups in neighbourhoods that are taking responsibility for their own development and giving small amounts of funds and becoming empowered, essentially. And you don't know where that's going to go. But once you do feel empowered and once you are given uh, the opportunity to make a difference, rather than just complaining the politicians are useless, they're corrupt, uh, and can't be bothered with it and resigning to it, if there are mechanisms whereby uh, South Americans are feeling empowered and have the, a vehicle to, to change their situation, it could go anywhere. So don't expect Bolivia to be off the bottom of the economic scale in 10 years' time, but do expect perhaps Bolivians to have more confidence about the ability to change their own personal circumstances or those around them. Changing the structures and the and the institutions is a, is a much bigger game, but I, I think I came away with, with, with great confidence because of the courage and the spirit that I saw in those individual people that I met as I travelled around.